going to continue our study through this season of Advent in the book of Ruth, looking at verses 6 through 18 this morning. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the introduction to the scripture, but just to get you up to speed very quickly, Ruth, Moab, or Ruth um, Naomi, and uh, Orpah have had a hard time. Basically, they all come together and have lost everything. And this is where the story picks up this morning. So again, the text is Ruth 1, 6 through 18. These are the words of God. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And then when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. The word of God for his people. Let's pray. Father, as we approach your inspired words that you have gifted to your church, we ask that you would inspire us through it. We need the illumination of your Holy Spirit to know what your word is saying to us. We need your spirit to be upon us, to convict our hearts, our minds, all of our being, to learn from you, to sit at your feet, to um, be conformed to the image of your son, Jesus. So we pray that you would do just that this morning, that you would change us to become more like you as we look to your word. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So we left off in our last sermon asking, how will these widows respond to hard Providences. When life gives you lemons, what are you going to do with it? What will they do with it? And this morning we're going to see the answer to that question kind of played out in seed form, like seeds being scattered. You've, you've all heard the parable before of the parable of the seeds, right? The, the sower goes out and he starts throwing seeds and it falls on all different kinds of grounds. Um, and the soil is a representation of the heart, right? 
The way that it goes out in the text says that the seed is the word of God. And here in this passage, we'll find three different types of soils in these characters. Three different heart positions. And there's going to be three different responses to what God is laying in their laps. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus explains why he spoke this parable. Why why did he say these things to the Pharisees and the disciples? Why did he speak this way? And he says, I speak to them in parables. Why? Because seeing they do not see. And hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Right? That's the way he speaks in parables. And many times in life, we're tempted to kind of just float along thinking that we're acting in faith. Right? We're seeing, but we're not really seeing. We're hearing, but we're not really hearing. We're not actually acting in faith. We're kind of just floating downstream. We're not paddling the boat. We're just kind of going along with the rhythms of culture. And yes, we're moving, and we seem to look around, and we see that things are passing by, so we can kind of fool ourselves into thinking that I'm actually acting and acting faithfully, but we're just kind of coasting. And we see, but we don't really see. And it shows our faith in those moments. It shows a reflection of the heart. Where our heart is, that's where our actions are going to be. We find many times, though, that we're half-hearted. One foot in, one foot out kind of position. And that's what we find in this narrative. In this narrative, we see an example of one who is fully devoted, though, to God. Right? We we can see the bad, we can see the good, we can kind of see the in-between. And we're going to see that Ruth really stands out as a shining example. And she does this by the sheer grace of God. Right? The conditions aren't set up for her. It's God working by grace through faith to make this happen. And that's the way that he always works. The reality is, this is a pre-incarnate picture of the present-day situation of God's people. Right? We have the Israel and the church. And Christ has become a stumbling block to the Jews. Right, That's what God's word says. He's a stumbling block to the Jews, but what? To the Gentiles. Salvation to the Gentiles. We could insert particular names in Romans 11 for the Jews and the Gentiles and say, Through, Naomi, or through Naomi's trespass, salvation has come to Ruth, so as to make Naomi jealous. We can think of the text really in this way. This pagan, this Gentile is being brought into the covenant community by God's grace. So what I hope to show you this morning is that God uses the grace of hardship and suffering to bring about the gift of faith in his people to save them from their sins. It's redemption. So let's look deeper at the passage now and see how God has really waved his or weaved his grace into this inspired story. Look with me starting in verse 6. Verse 6 says, Then she arose, this is speaking of Naomi, because the spotlight is still pretty much on Naomi at this point. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. What we're going to do is we're just going to kind of walk chronologically through this passage. We're just going to start here and work all the way through it. So what we see now is that there's a departure from Moab. Remember in the, the first sermon, we were coming from Bethlehem to Moab. Things were bad there. They're coming over here. Now Naomi's over here, and she sees that the famine has ended in the land. So she's like, well, the grass is greener over there now. I'm going to go back over there. The, the, the glimmer of hope is maybe I can go back and get food and kind of restart life. So they're exiting yet another bad context. That's where we find these three widows. So they set out with the two daughters-in-law. They're departing. They're all going together. And it's at this point that we see all three of these women, all three of these widows are really on the same page, right? 
The three of them have set out together as a group um, on a, a women's road trip back to Bethlehem. They're all together at this point, heading west for better days. And then something happens in verse 7. Verse 7 says, So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So they're on their way now. In verse 8, But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, So there's something that happens. There's a shift. There's a a change of mind in verse 8. She then says, Go return each of you to her mother's house. Return to your mother's house. So there's this change of mind. Why did Naomi change her mind? They've they've already set out, and she's already at this point. They're they're long enough now to where Naomi can say return. So that means that they're kind of in this middle ground, kind of in the limbo period. They they haven't arrived yet, but they have set out, kind of where we find ourselves in this season of Advent. It's that season of anticipation. What are we going to do? How are we going to respond? So we're on this journey. We're sojourning with them. And then there's this point of resistance. Where Naomi changes her mind. And why does she do this? Why does Naomi change her mind? Because before, obviously, she was fine with setting out with these these two women. She didn't have any protest at the beginning when they were still in Moab. But along the way, she starts rationalizing. Right? We can see it kind of playing out in the text. She starts thinking logically about the implications of what she's doing. She starts thinking, and you've done that before, haven't you? You kind of set on, on, on a journey to do something. you got this plan, and as you go along the way, your mind starts rolling. You're like, oh, I don't know about this. How, does, how is this all going to play out? And that's, I think, what Naomi starts to do. We can see she starts giving rationale for why she's going to tell her two daughters to do so-and-so. So she develops a, a life plan for her daughters, essentially. Isn't that funny? She kind of just tells them what they're going to do, what's going to be best for them, and they're along the way, and there's this shift. So what is this great plan that Naomi has that's better than what they were going to do? Well, the plan is essentially this. It's three things. Number one, go home. She says, return each of you to her mother's house. So the place of familiarity, the comfortable place. Go back home. It'll be, it'll be better there for, for you. So it seems good on the surface. Number two, be blessed. That seems great, right? May the Lord deal kindly with you, she says. Number three, find grace. The Lord, you'll notice the Lord there is all caps. That's Yahweh. Yahweh grant that you may find rest. So these three things, go home, be blessed, and find grace. And we have to ask ourselves, she's saying that you might find rest. And I want to just pause for a second and ask, where is this rest coming from? Where are they going to get it from? Well, she says, from the house of her husband. What husband? Her husband's dead. The house of her husband is going back to Bethlehem. What Naomi is implying here is that you can find a new husband. You can have a, a new start. Go back to mama's house, live there for a little while, a little while, find a Moabite husband, and start over. That's, that's what she's essentially telling them. So what is the daughter-in-law's initial response? Well, they're not too happy about this. They, they weep and cry. It says in verse 9, they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said, no, we will return with you to, to your people. We're dedicated to you, Naomi. We, we want to stay with you. And then what does Naomi do? She, she buckles down even harder. She kind of gives her rationale. She said, I've, I've thought about this, guys. As we've been traveling along, I've been thinking that the logic doesn't, it doesn't work out for you guys. It's not going to work. So here's the logic in verse 11 through 13. She says, Have I sons in my womb 
What is she talking about there? Have I sons in my womb? She's talking about a Levite marriage. I think most of you are probably familiar with the idea. Basically, uh, if there's a husband and a wife, if the husband dies, his brother would then step up to continue on that family line. It was an honorable thing. It was a law put in place in Israel actually to continue on the seed. It was a gift from God to have this. Now, we know that the two brothers both died. This was an impossibility. So what she's saying is that if you were going to have this work out, I'd have to have another baby. I'd have to have an, another person come on. And she says, I'm too old to have a husband, right? I'm too old for that. And then she gives this long, hopeful stretch. She says, even if I did have a husband, and even if I did somehow bear children, you would have to wait years for this to happen. It's going to be years. And further, you'd have to wait and refrain from marriage yourself. And maybe by that time, you would be too old and wouldn't even be able to conceive yourself. Maybe you'd be un- uninterested. Who knows what could happen between now and then. Plus, do you really want to be with me changing your future husband's diapers? Like, that's, that's the situation, right? That if this is going to work out in her mind, this is these two ladies helping her raise these kids, and they're going to be their future husbands. Like, it just is weird. And, and, and besides that, the, she's saying that the hand of the Lord is against me. Right? That's that's her rationale. She's saying, all these bad things that's happened to me, God's obviously not on my side. And she's saying, it's exceedingly bitter to me about it. I've become a little bit bitter. And it's at this point that we begin to sympathize with Naomi, don't we? Like, she's made a pretty good case. Who wants to change their husband's diapers? Like, you don't, if you don't have to do that, why would you go and do that? So she gives a pretty convincing case. Um, and, and and we can start to get on her, on her side. But let's stop, slow down for a minute, and... Think about this ourselves. What might be the problems with what she is saying here? Because on the surface, seeing, it seems fine. Right? Seeing, we, we might not see the problems. But that's what we're trying to get down to, is that deeper level of what might be going on here. So what are the problems? Number one, Naomi is making decisions in fear, not in faith. She's acting out of, out of fear. She's blind to the fact that God might possibly have a third option. She's only, she's only thinking of two things here, right? There's only two options in her mind. The two outcomes are either they return back to Moab and become fruitful by finding new husbands, start over, get a new life, go back to your land, or they come with her and they remain unfruitful widows for the rest of their lives. That's the only two options that she's able, able to see at this point, and that's what keeps her um, on the journey pushing them back, saying, return, go back. And you can kind of hear that that language of turn back. It's almost like a get behind me kind of get behind me Satan moment, isn't it? Where she thinks that she's saying the right thing. She thinks that she's speaking on behalf of God. But she's like taunting these two Gentiles that are trying to be dedicated to the covenant people. And she's saying turn back, not once, but turn back again. And you hear in this in this uh, chapter here, there's 12 times that language of return. And she's insisting, go back, ladies. So she's blind at this point. So Naomi wishes that Ruth and Orpah would return to their mother's house and perhaps find a new husband. And then, as it says in verse 9, I said we'd come back to this, find rest in the house of her husband. We said that's not the deceased husband. This is a new husband. Now, having a sense of security and stability is a good thing, isn't it? Families are good. It's a a gift from God to have family. Rationally, Naomi was wise in thinking this way, but this blessing was actually part of the covenant blessing that God had promised to the children of Israel. 
She couldn't make this promise. The rest that Naomi and Ruth um, are, are after in this story is the kind of covenant faithfulness that brings fruitfulness in the realm of land, offspring, and relationship. These three things are the, the, what followed the promises of the people of God. God promised Abraham these three things. He says, I will multiply your seed. That's the offspring. I'm giving you this land. There's the land. And I will be my or I will be your God and you will be my people. That's part of the covenant blessing that God gave to the people of Israel. So Naomi is misguided in sending Ruth and Orpah to find covenant blessing in the house of Moab. Do you see that? Do you see what I'm saying here? She's saying you can get God's blessing over there. But you can't. She couldn't make that promise. Find grace. Right? You're not going to find grace in the gods of Moab from Chemosh. You're not going to find it there. You can't be blessed over there. And further, you guys have already tried to be fruitful there, and you don't have any kids. Right? She's not thinking clearly through this. This isn't a possibility. It's not possible for they to return there. It necessarily meant disloyalty to Yahweh. Is what she was doing. She was pushing them against the one true God. Because land, offspring, and relationship is part of the covenant blessing of God. And this isn't this wasn't just an Israelite thing either. Land, offspring, and relationship, that was uh, part of the worldview of this ancient world. Right? The the Moabites had gods in their lands that promised these things too. But guess what? They usually didn't um, come through on their promises. They didn't have a true God. They had a a false God. So she's saying, maybe you can find it over there. I'll go my way, and you go your way. I'll do me, you do you. That's what our culture says now. It's not a new thing. We've always been falling into it. Christians always have this tendency to just say, you know what? I'm not just going to make, I'm not going to make a stand about this thing. You can find blessing. You can do your thing over there. Go be happy and do your thing, and I'll do mine. That's what a pluralistic society always ends up falling into. It's not covenant faithfulness to the one true God. We're not willing to say there is one way to God. We're we're always slipping into saying, well, there's lots of ways. You do your way, and we're all on the same road, right? No. No. Naomi should have known by this point that the only place to find covenant blessing is under the headship of the one true God, Yahweh. What Naomi misses, and we often miss, is that security and blessing have to be hitched to God. Right? Families are good things, right? All the gifts that we have in life, they're good things, but you can't have them and enjoy them and have that power to um, have a, a life-giving um, experience without faith. Right? That's what we talked about last time when, when we looked back at Ecclesiastes for a minute. God gives us all this stuff. He gives us wealth. He gives us food. He gives us family. He gives us drink. He gives us sex even. He gives us all these great things. But he also gives us the power to enjoy them. It takes that element of faith for us to have a, that real, true experience with God. And that's what Naomi misses here. So to sum up the problems, Naomi is faithless, she's short-sighted, and misguided. And we look at her, and we judge her so hard, and we've seen the splinters in Naomi's eye. Now let's look at the planks in her own. Right? If, we, if we turn the light back on us, what ways have we lived like Naomi, making rational plans for your life that seem right on the surface, but at the heart of the matter, they're unhitched from God? We think... 
logically through everything. We think rationally, and we don't think with the lens of faith. We think through how might this work out for me, and how might this work out for them, and we don't even think to consult God in prayer, fasting, waiting on the Lord, being still, knowing that God is God and we are not, and that we can't figure everything out. So many times we fall into this same kind of thing without even consulting God at all. And further, we do this for ourselves, but how have we done this to others as well? Right? That's what Naomi does in this passage. She makes life plans for others. These two women are coming to her, looking to her for counsel, and she gives them really, really bad advice. What ways have we had an opportunity to where someone comes to this and we're so quick to give them an answer because we want to seem impressive to them, that we can think logically through things. So where people come to us and we don't say, let me get back to you on that. Let me pray about that. Let me think about it. Um, Let me see what God might be showing me. Um, I might even fast about it. How often do we do that? Very rarely. I know I'm guilty of it as well. People people look to us for answers, and we can be so quick to give them an answer, so quick to not think in faith that we actually push them away from where God might be trying to lead them. It's a scary reality. This is precisely what Naomi did. And let's look now at the response that the daughters-in-law gave to her in verse 14. Verse 14 says, They lifted up their voices and wept again. The same response that they got the first time. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. But Ruth clung to her. Once again, resistance. And here's where the dividing line of faith is drawn between these two types of soils. Between these two hearts. Orpah gives in to the pressure. She, not, uh, she returns not only to the land of Moab, but to her false gods. It's not just going back home. There's more involved there, isn't there? They don't, they don't worship Yahweh over there. She's re- returning to her gods, to the god of Moab, not to the god of Israel. So Naomi's faithless plan actually guides Orpah straight to a rejection of God. And this is the last time that Orpah is ever mentioned in Scripture. Think about that. She's pointed away, and you don't hear about her anymore. It's a sad reality that we must reckon with, because there's times in our life when we have even done the same thing. We've caused the little ones to stumble, as Jesus says. Do you remember what Jesus says in Luke 17, 1 and 2? He says, and he said to his disciples, temptations are sure to come. Yes, there's going to be temptations, he says. They're out there. Of course they're out there. But woe to the one through whom they come. Scary reality. What does he say about that person? It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, that he should cause one of these little ones to stumble. And was not Naomi or was not Ruth and Orpah little ones? These pagans trying to do the right thing, trying to follow her into the land of promise, and she's pushing them away. And God says, you know what? It would be better for you to throw yourself off a bridge with a brick around your neck and you drown. It's scary. We have to to think about this in our own life. When we respond to people that are interacting with us, coming coming to us for advice and counsel, how are we going to counsel them? How are we going to advise them when they're looking to us, the spiritual ones, the Christians, the one who have a relationship with Yahweh, the covenant God? How will we respond? How will we speak to these people? We can learn something from this, can't we? From Orpah's decision, from Naomi's decision. 
Too often in the church, we make following Jesus a private, gradual, kind of wishy-washy decision. Don't we? Think about that. The way that we invite people in. Like Orpah, we want to live uh, around church people, but not necessarily jump headlong. Right? We kind of keep that distance. They might go to church and start on the journey to Bethlehem. And then along the way, we realize uh, when religion is brought up, they're the first people to throw those people under the bus, too. Right? They're all hypocrites. I went to that church, and then I saw them outside of church, and they're just a bunch of religious hypocrites. And what they're doing there is they're, they're kind of keeping enough uh, distance from the world to feel safe, but also just enough distance from that church to where they're in one foot and in with the other foot. So they're kind of in the middle, what the Bible actually calls being lukewarm. Right? God wants full commitment. He doesn't want one foot over there and one foot over there. The lukewarm people, what does he say about them? What does he do? He spits them out. He says, I don't want anything of it. I want you to either be in or out. I want full dedication. So like everything else, we want that kind of things in our culture, don't we? But we don't want to commit. We want, to, we want uh, sex before marriage, see if they're good in bed. If, I'll, if they're great, then I'll stick around. If I'm happy, if they can satisfy me, then I'll stay around. We want long return policies on our products. If they don't make us happy, I want to take it back. It's funny, on the, on the way to church uh, today, uh, I thought of a great sermon example as Anora was trying these banana chips for the first time. Uh, Brie handed them into the back seat, and she started to try them. And she took the banana chip, and she licked it. And then she was going to go put it back in the bag. It was a no-go for her. She did not like the banana chips. She was going to put them back in the bag. And that's so many times what people do with church and with religion. They want to show up to church. They'll look at the chip, look around. They say, I don't, I don't like these people. I see them inside of church, outside of church. I'm out. But they still want to have like a half-hearted commitment. But what God says is you just got to eat the chip. Put it all in. Go head long. God doesn't function with one foot in and one foot out. He says, follow me, period. He says, follow me. That's what Jesus is doing all through his ministry, isn't he? As he's going through the streets, he'll look a man right in the eye and say, follow me. And then that man will have the audacity to say, let me go bury my father, um, make some arrangements, and it'll, it'll all work out in the end. And Jesus says, no, let the dead bury the dead. All right? He'll come to another man. Come, follow me. And he says, no, uh, let me go say goodbye to my family. Let me kind of transition over there to you. I'll see you in a couple weeks. It was nice meeting you. We'll catch back up later. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. That's not the way it works. Anyone who puts his hand to the plow and then looks back is not worthy of the kingdom of God. That's not the way we live religion now, is it? We want to try it on. We want to lick the chip and throw it back in the bag. (laughs) We, We have a God, though, who is relentless in pursuing us. He's jealous is what the scripture says. He he wants undivided loyalty. And it's not that God wants to take away the small joys of life like family, home, drink, um, things like that. It's not that God wants to take it away. Rather, he wants us to realize that that joy in those things is inextricably linked to him. Right? He doesn't want to take away your life. He wants to give you life and life abundantly. You think that you're, you're uh, getting gypped on a, on a deal when you follow Jesus because you've got to throw away some things. But the reality is, is you're trading them in for better things, lasting satisfaction, for, for, for joy that will never, ever wear out. We think that we're enjoying the things of life until we get a real taste, get, get a, a full bite of God's grace. 
And that's the way that God calls us to follow him. Because once you start to partake of God, you realize there's nothing better. He, he never leaves you dissatisfied. You never start to abide in Christ and then you realize, nah, this isn't good. And that's why it takes jumping headlong in. You have to go fully committed to God. So we see that Orpah's fate is really as good as Lot's wife, isn't it? She looks back and she's as good as a pillar of salt. She's not mentioned again in scripture. She, she's done. Orpah had no depth to her soil. Right? She, she starts out on the journey. She is going, right? The, the seed is thrown out. It goes into the soil. It even takes root a little bit, but it wasn't deep enough because when Orpah is resisted by Naomi, the sun scorched her out, didn't it? It's scary to think about that reality, that we can start off thinking, I'm going to go. I'm going to be committed to Jesus. I showed up to Sunday at service. Things are great. And then at about Tuesday, something happens. You get that pushback. You get the resistance. And sometimes, guess what? It might even be the church member. right? It might be that person in the church that's pushing you, but it takes a real, genuine faith to persevere through it. To love God in the face of persecution, even if it's coming from the church. So, we've seen now Orpah's faith. What about Ruth? How does Ruth respond to this same scenario? She's a sister, She's right there next to her sister-in-law, isn't she? Ruth's faith is persevering. It says Ruth clung to her. She's not letting go. We read those famous words in verse 16 through 17. You've heard them so many times, mostly in marriage ceremonies, because they're so beautiful. It's a, it's a picture of perfect commitment. She says, do not urge me to leave you. Or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. It's beautiful, isn't it? Ruth's decision stands in stark contrast to Orpah's decision. It's completely different. Ruth, with plain resoluteness, says to God, I will follow you. She doesn't make excuses. She had plenty to make excuses, doesn't she? Like, if, if you look at her situation, it isn't what we see in most religious contexts today. She wasn't in a, uh, a worship service where the, the lights are dimmed low and the, the pastor says up front, everyone bow your heads, everyone close your eyes, and you can very secretly just slip up your hand. No one will see you. No one has to see this decision that you make for the Lord. I promise you we can meet secretly in a quiet room in the back afterwards, and you can make this decision for the Lord as discreetly as possible possible. Zero resistance. Just please, please lift your hand. That's not, that's not at all what she gets. The religious people in the room are telling her, turn back. Get out of here. Go back to your homeland. Everything in her context, everything about life to Ruth is saying no. But she says yes. The conditions are absolutely horrible for it. And yet, Something urges her to have this really great faith. And I would argue absolutely. This is the grace of God working through people that we would otherwise say there's no way that God could be at work there. That's the way God works. He works in really unexpected ways. 
Now, just as marriage vows entail this oath, so does religion. This is a religious oath. We're familiar with this phrase because it's been often used in marriage ceremonies. Absolute commitment is what it's saying. The commitment she made to Naomi was covenantal. We talk about marriage being a covenant sometimes, don't we? This is what Naomi, or this is what Ruth is doing. It wasn't wasn't just a rash decision. It wasn't even just pretty words. It was a covenant. She said, may Yahweh do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. It's an oath. She essentially said to God, till death do us part. She said to Naomi, even, till death do us part. Right? We often forget that aspect of it. She's saying, your God will be my God. Yes, she's converting to, uh, to be an Israelite. She's going over to the covenant people. But what else does she, say, does she say? She says, your people will be my people. Now, what does this translate over to modern day? Your church is going to be my church. I'm going to join in, not just with you, not just with your God, but with your people, with Christians, with those who are following God, no matter what. I'm going to persevere, even in a church, if it's sometimes unhealthy. I'm going to, I'm going to stick with it. I'm going to love these people unto death. That's what church membership really means. It means that we're dedicated to these people, to standing by them, saying, where you go, I'm going to be there with you because I love you. My love doesn't give up on you. Where you uh, house, that's where I'm going to house. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live there. Where you stay, where, that's where I'm going. I'm with you wherever we go. That's the love of a true Christian. And she fought Naomi's faithlessness with a true faithfulness. And that's what we have to do sometimes, even in the church. Fighting other people's faithlessness with our faithfulness. Saying, no, this is what God wants for me and my family. And we're going to do this. We're going we're, we're to resist. So then, what is Naomi's final response? That's what we're doing, back and forth, isn't it? We, we see one acts, the other one responds. And we see now, once again, how will Naomi respond to such a difficult situation? What is she going to do? It's doubtful that Naomi was warm towards Ruth and all of this. If you, if you look at it, she tells Ruth to go home, not only for Ruth's logical well-being, but for herself, too. I think that there's a little bit of selfishness in this decision-making, isn't there? Ruth is a project to Naomi. If Ruth goes back to the covenant people, she stands next to Naomi as a pink elephant in the room. What, is all, what are all these people going to say about this Moabite, this pagan in the covenant people? What if I show up to church with this stinky, smelly, homeless man that I'm um, bringing to church? Right? Think about it. It's, it might not go over well. There might be some weird looks. And we know that middle-aged women think about this thing, right? What is everyone going to think of me? I'm sure this is running through her mind. She's thinking, how is this going to impact me? I don't have a husband to stick by me anymore. It's just me on my own. And I'm bringing this person back with me. How am I going to get received and accepted back into this community? What's everyone going to think of her? So there's a little bit of selfishness. So she pleads for Ruth to just stay home for the sake of them both. It'd be best for me. It'd be best for you. She even makes some good points. There's no logical future here for her. But she sees through the lens of logic, doesn't she? It's black and white. She only sees two options. She doesn't see grace coloring in the picture. There isn't much hope for her, is there? It's just clear cut in her mind. Seeing... She does not see, Jesus says. Yet, Ruth sees something that Naomi apparently does not. 
Because she persists. She pushes forward. She says, no, I'm going to stay. She sees through the lens of faith. Naomi doesn't. And what is Naomi's response to this unswerving, absolute, steadfast faith? It's a bitter silence. That's what the text says. She doesn't say any more. She says, or it says that she closed her mouth and doesn't say another word. So here's this silent trip back to Bethlehem with these two women. We'll pick back up from this point next time. But before we close, I'd like to draw your attention to Ruth's example once more. What we see in Ruth is an echo of the gospel. It's a true echo of the gospel. The gospel is the good news of God in Christ Jesus. It's God's love given to us in the incarnation. incarnation. God with us. The God took on human flesh and dwelt among us. He came to be with us in our midst even now. Remember, we're in the presence of the Savior right now. We stand with all the heavenly angels worshiping God through this service even now. God is with us. And he didn't send God into this beautiful land flowing with milk and honey, did he? It's messy. He sent God to live with us. Remember who the us is and God with us. It's the messy people. It's the people that have sin in their lives that they're working out. And it's God that is at work with us to work those things out. He sent Jesus to sympathize with our every need and to suffer not just with us, but for us. That work that he did wasn't just so he could be kind of like us. It was so that he could take it for us. He sent Jesus to humble himself and say like Ruth, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You will be my holy possession and I will love you even unto death. Till death do us part. We are family, God says. And that's what family does. Family doesn't give up. Family sticks with it. Jesus calls us his brothers. He says we are sons and daughters of the living God, of Yahweh, of the covenant God of Israel. And we use Ruth's words in marriages because they're covenantal. It's not just nice words we said. It's a promise. It's a seal of devotion. And so too, God has entered into a covenant of grace with Jesus who's promised to love us, to protect us, and to sanctify us as our glorious bridegroom. Right? More language of family. Jesus is our bridegroom. We are the bride. And when we are bitter like Naomi, Jesus, the better Ruth, stands by our side, loyal, and says, I will renew you. Right? Ephesians 5 talks about the husband sanctifying the bride. So you're the bride, and he, he says, I will guide you into holiness and present to you to myself without spot or blemish. Do you remember that language from Ephesians 5? That's what God does for us in Jesus. He says, we are one. We have real communion. And I'm going to work in your hearts and change you. Your people are mine, and I am yours. And wherever you go as a church... There I will be in your midst. The same kind of promises that he was making to Israel, he makes to the church. So we leave off here on the long road to Bethlehem, kind of like Mary and Joseph. right? In this Christmas season, we remember them. As they, as they head to Judah for the census, Mary is miserably pregnant on a donkey. The conditions aren't very great. They're very unfavorable. You can't really see how it would work out. But we know that while they're on this uh, on this road, there's this not just pregnancy, but this pregnancy, uh, this expectation of something to come. And that's what we can kind of see on this story. 
right? As, as we're moving towards Bethlehem, we see the conditions aren't great, but because we know, we can turn a couple pages ahead, we have that privilege, we know that there's great joy about to be birthed out of this story. God is at work. Just like God was at work back then in Mary and Joseph heading into Bethlehem, no one would have known from little old Bethlehem something amazing might come. And that's what we'll pick up next time. Let's pray. Father, you are beyond faithful to us. You are the perfect picture of faithfulness to us. We thank you for your grace working in areas of our lives that we would otherwise never expect goodness to come from. And that's what we see in this picture. In a land far away, you call people to yourself. People who are strangers, people who are exiles, people who are not part of your covenant people. You say, they are my people. You've been... You've brought us near. We who were once aliens, you have brought near to yourself through the gospel. And we thank you for these glimpses of your grace that we get to see in characters, even through the Old Testament. Lord, may we have these things applied well to our lives as we live them out this week. Help us to be faithful to you as you've been faithful to us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.